Well, good morning. It is uh, good to see you guys. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 this morning. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 12, uh, as you guys turn there, let me just say, I hope you guys had a great Halloween. Uh, we're kind of at that family stage where we went all out this Halloween. So this is us Wednesday night at the country fair here at Southwood. All right. Uh, Caroline, as you can tell, was Minnie Mouse. Uh, our little baby boy, six months old, Coulter, was a uh, chunky monkey. All right. Uh, and I was some really creepy, weird version of Bert. All right. Um, and Marcy was Elmo. So we're kind of at that stage where we, in a sense, costume-wise, we go all out. All right. We had a great night here at Southwood. A lot of the community came in for uh, Country Fair. Had a great night. But I want to kind of at least let you guys know a little bit more about the inner workings of our home and what our family life is like a little bit. As you guys see Minnie Mouse and as you guys see Chunky Monkey, I in no way want you guys to begin to think that they are sweet all the time. All right. Uh, ultimately, there's something happening each and every day in our home, and it really can be summarized by one of my favorite phrases that I don't think we get enough usage out of, and that's the phrase, coup d'etat. All right, so uh, every, every day, every week in our home, there's basically one goal that our little Minnie Mouse daughter and Chunky Monkey's son have, and that's this to completely overthrow all the authority that mom and dad have in the home, all right? Uh, and, and it occurs very subtly uh, with my daughter's constant questions of, Daddy, I'm boss, why you not obey, all right? So uh, on a daily basis, my daughter asks me why I not obey her, all right? On a daily basis, she tries to affirm to me that she is my boss, which, of course, very firmly and very swiftly, I reassure her she's not my boss, right? So as the oldest daughter in the home, the oldest child in the home, she cannot conquer mom and dad, so what do you think she does? She tries to conquer her little brother, right? She wants to be boss to the dog. She wants to be boss to the doll. She wants to be in charge of something and somebody, all right? And if she can't get mom and dad under her thumbnail, she's going to get somebody under her thumbnail. And so she's incredibly precious. I love her with all my heart. But day in and day out in our home, the question, in a sense, feels up for grabs because it's challenged on a daily basis. So the question is, who's really in charge, all right? It is challenged on a daily basis, and my daughter is just three, all right? And my boy is six months, all right? And he's already pushing against authority, all right? And in fact, I think it's not just that question is up for grabs in our home, but that question is really up for grabs in many ways with election right around the corner that we'll get results to Tuesday night, right? The question is, in the next couple, 60 hours, we're going to find out who is now going to be in charge of the world's free market economy, right? In the next 60 hours, we're going to find who is now going to be really with a finger on a thumb of the world's most powerful military in the world, at least one of them, right? In the next 60 hours, we're going to see, and since culturally speaking, presidentially speaking through the election, who is in charge in this country, presidentially, uh, and throughout much of the political offices in our country? Huge question, huge time of, of year. In fact, I think it's not just coincidence that we land in Acts chapter 12 this morning, because I think Acts chapter 12 is incredibly right on with a message that we so desperately need to be reminded of at this time of year. I don't know about you guys in terms of how you guys engage politics or whether you guys are paying attention or at, at all or not, but I, I personally kind of vacillate between extremely frustrated and extremely indifferent, right? If I really want to pay attention, I really want to engage in the process, I often find myself just so frustrated by a media that can spin things by the inability to really find the true answers and true objective, sometimes commentary on the issues and on what's going on. And then I kind of vacillate when I get frustrated, I say, oh, forget about it. Then I kind of move toward indifference and just complete disengagement, all right? And, and I think at this time of year, what you're going to find happening come Tuesday night and especially Wednesday morning is you're going to find a country that's divided. You're going to have half of the country that's going to think that the Christ has just been elected or reelected, all right? A guy who's going to be able to solve all of our world's problems, who's going to bring peace, who's going to provide prosperity. And the other half of the country is going to be doom and gloom, all right? Thinking this is the worst thing that could have ever happened to our country. And they're going to be in absolute abject despair. 
The media is going to have all kinds of fear and hate that's going to be spewed everywhere to really paralyze and to really cause many of us to panic. And what I want to do this morning is I think Acts chapter 12 will have a message that you will not hear Wednesday morning. As you turn on the TV on or as you turn the radio on, Acts 12 is a message that you will not hear in any way, shape, or form, but it's a message that you and I so desperately need to be reminded of at this time of year. So what we're going to see is we're going to see that the church of God is going to come under attack. It is going to come face to face with an evil monarchy and an evil majority. And the question is going to be in the midst of an election season, in the midst of a political discussion, how does the church of God handle evil majorities and evil monarchies? More generally speaking, how does the church of God and God himself navigate in the midst of political arenas and governments of different kinds and of different places and of different times? How do you and I, in a sense, with a Christian perspective, engage politics, understand it, and navigate the different kinds of commentary that you're going to hear come Wednesday morning as people are going to think that either the Christ has been reelected or the Antichrist has been elected? People are going to go to one extreme or the other, and yet there's going to be a message that you and I so desperately need to hear this morning from Acts 12 that's going to land us right in the middle. So if you will look with me, Acts chapter 12 this morning, verse starting in verse 1, really what we're going to find is the passage opens is that the church of God is going to come, in a sense, right against an evil monarchy and an evil majority. Look at verse one, chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod, the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. And as the passage opens, really what I think you begin to get from the very outset is in a sense, a power play. You're going to see an evil monarch who's going to make a power play against the church as he beheads and kills James, and then as he's going to arrest Peter. And so here, Acts chapter 12, we've seen as we walk through the book of Acts at large, we've seen persecution internally or uh, externally to the church occur in, in all different shapes, forms, and fashions. And here in Acts 12, the, the heat gets a little bit more intense, right? We've had Stephen uh, uh, martyred and stoned in Acts 7, but here in Acts 12, all of a sudden the, the, the political engine really gets engaged and all of a sudden the church is going to find itself right in the crosshairs of government in a way that it had not yet been to this intensity. We're going to have an evil monarch who's going to come against the church and the question is, what is God going to do? As this guy named Herod, in a sense, uh, uh, kills James and arrests Peter. The question is, who is Herod? Uh, we, know, we know from commentary, we know from background that Herod was appointed by the Romans. He was actually of Jewish descent, so he had some Jewish blood in him. And for that reason, as he's ruling over Israel, uh, appointed by the Romans, he's going to be absolutely despised by the Jews. And so he was ruling over the Jews. He had Jewish blood in him. But as he ruled, appointed by the Romans, they saw him as an outsider and they hated him. They despised him. And so what you're going to have here as a king is not just one who's evil going to go against the church, but you're going to have a king particularly who's going to be very influenced by an evil majority. He's going to be, in a sense, in many ways, a very insecure leader because what he's going to do is going to be all about uh, attaining the favor of the crowds and of the majorities. So if, as you guys notice back in verse two, uh, verse three says that when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he then proceeded to arrest Peter also. And so you have a king here, King Herod, who's very insecure, is an incredibly weak leader. And as a result of that, he's going to end up operating and leading in a way that's incredibly improper. I'm going to give you guys kind of a contemporary version of who I think King Herod is like. And so some of you guys, uh, not as popular today, but but uh, might be fans of The Office, all right? I, I think in many ways, King Herod is a contemporary version of Michael Scott, all right? Who was once asked, uh, would you rather be feared or loved? To which Michael Scott said, easy, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me, all right? I think in many ways, King Herod is much like a Michael Scott, a guy who is in power and in authority, but his greatest concern is not so much what's best for the people, but what will make people like him the most, right? 
And so he leads in a way that's all about obtaining the favor of those that he leads over. And so what you're going to find is a guy who's not just an evil monarch, but he's going to be absolutely influenced by an evil majority. And so the text says that he, he ends up arresting Peter because you could tell that, it was, uh, that the Jews liked it. But even more, the end of verse 3, it says that it occurred during the days of unleavened bread. Why this particular timing? Why is it that Herod decided to do this with James and this with Peter at this particular timing? And I think he's in a sense grandstanding. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Jews would have returned back to the Promised Land. And as they would have returned, Peter, King Herod would have had a giant platform, a giant reach, a giant sense of influence. As so many Jews would have been back to see this. And in a sense, I think King Herod is grandstanding. <laughs> he's trying to appeal to the greatest number of people that he can. And he's leading in such a way that it's all about obtaining the favor of those that he leads. He's a weak leader. He's an evil monarch who's really influenced and, and led by an evil majority. And so the Jews, they killed Jesus. They, they want this early church thing killed early on. And so he's leading in such a way that's really, he's in a sense, a pawn of this evil majority. This is an insecure and a weak leader. And as a result of that, what you're going to see is he capitulates to an evil majority. Is you're going to see him lead in a kind of way that's going to be overly excessive and all about an overcompensation. And what he's going to do, even as he arrests Peter, is going to have all kinds of threads of a little bit of an overreaction. Notice what he does in verses 4 to 6 as he arrests Peter. Notice, notice how controlling Herod tries to get. Notice how strong of a grip he tries to have as he arrests Peter. Verse 4. And so when Herod has seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Intending that after the Passover, he would bring him out before the people. And so Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. As Herod arrests Peter and puts him away, he puts him in a prison, he seizes him, he grabs him, he puts four squads of soldiers over this guy. And even as he's in prison, he's going to have one guard attached to one arm and chained and one guard attached and chained to the other arm. Uh, Typical tradition uh, and typical practice at the time would have been just to have one guard chained to one arm of a soldier or of a prisoner. And yet Herod, in a sense, doubles it, right? He's going to have two soldiers chained to each of the arms. He's going to have four squads rotating to guard this guy. Herod is going to have a demonstration that is way over and beyond what was necessary. Herod wants to show as a weak and insecure leader that he's in control and that he's in charge. What's going to be fascinating in a sense as God responds is you're going to see that he's not at all in control in, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, as, as, uh, thinking of the story as you watch in a sense the rule of the mortal Herod, really I, I was thinking of an occur, occurrence that happened with a good friend of mine who uh, <laughs> he had a twin brother. He had the same kind of body type. And one of the things they would do in and out of every year is they'd have a time where they get together for what they would call their annual pose down, all right? So these twin brothers would, uh, as they lived apart from one another, they would work out for months to get their body to peak shape to get ready for the pose down. And right, yeah, they get together and they would shed off clothing except for a swimsuit and they would go through the different muscle groups flexing to show who was more fit than the other, right? And as you guys can imagine with any siblings and especially twins, it didn't just start and stop with the pose down, did it? No, it eventually led to because they couldn't convince one another based on just flexing who was the stronger. And so eventually these guys would throw down and get down on the ring and they would wrestle, right? To show who is actually in charge and who is actually dominant over the other. And so you're really going to have, in a sense, in this story, Herod is going to flex and he's going to muscle up uh, against the church and, and in some ways even against God himself. And the question is, as we all can realize, this isn't going to be just a pose down. 
God is not going to be affronted by his church and he's going to respond. In many cases, really, even as you see the great control that Herod has, it resembles to me very much of a Bourne movie or a Bond movie where the, the protagonist is, in a sense, locked away in an impossible situation that you just know is going to be remedied. He's going to escape somehow, right? And so what God is going to do is he's going to muscle back. And in a sense, you know, as God muscles back, there's no way that this King Herod is going to pin a divine king to the mat. And so you know God is going to win. But what I love about what God does is he waits to the very last possible minute. Look back at verse six, that on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. God is going to wait to the very last possible minute to intervene. It's the very night before he's going to be brought forward and executed. And so God waits the very last possible minute. And then he intervenes. Notice to the degree to which he intervenes in verse seven. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and he woke him up saying, get up quickly. And notice now in the next few verses, notice how God ends up overturning every element of control that King Herod wanted and tried to have. And so the, uh, in verse seven, and so uh, his chains fell off. And then in verse eight, and the angel said to him, gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from him. God is going to intervene in the story. He intervenes in such a way that it completely overturns and undoes every element and every arrangement of control that King Herod put in place. You had a weak leader who wanted to show by a great uh, showing of power that he was in control and God in just one night overturns it all. <laughs> Four squads of soldiers, a soldier on each arm, chains and double doors, guards in the prison, guards outside the prison, gates outside of the city. And what God does in one night is overturn and wipe it all away. Completely. Herod muscles up and God muscles up next to him and says, I don't think so. And Peter's going to actually attribute this to God. And notice in verse 11, notice how Peter summarizes what's happened. He finally comes to himself in verse 11. And he says, now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Peter comes to his senses as he's escaped and he's been delivered. And he says, hey, here's what's happened. An angel, God himself has rescued me from an evil monarch, King Herod. And all that the Jews were expecting, even an evil majority. That for the church of God and for God himself, that he is not going to be dictated to by evil majorities or evil monarchies. They don't hold a candle to him. And as they flex and as they show their power and as they try to bring control, it cannot hold and it cannot imprison God and his church. And so God flexes and shows, throws off all the controls that Herod had put in place. And Peter says, praise be to God. Because when it comes to evil majorities and evil monarchies, they do not dictate to the king of the universe what's going to happen. <laughs> that to the king of the universe, he will not put, he put in check. He will not be affronted by evil majorities and evil monarchies. He's sovereign even over them. And when the church of God comes against them, God flexes his muscle and says, no, I don't think so. In fact, even as you look through the New Testament, you get a great discussion by and large about government and, pol- and politics. As we're kind of thinking through this, I was thinking, well, where do we go with this? What does it mean for you and I? In fact, I think there's a couple things we can affirm as we think about what the scriptures have said about politics. The first is this. Paul will speak in Romans chapter 13, speaking of the rule of the immortal or God himself. And he says, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. It's one thing for us to say this in a, in a country that embraces freedom and freedom of religion like we do. But realize that Paul and Peter are writing during a time of uh, evil emperor Nero and during times in which the church is being persecuted by evil monarchies and evil majorities. And yet they can affirm this, 
that God installs his kings as he chooses, that he is in control, that authority has been established by him and those that have been installed in offices are by his grace and by his choosing, that he's sovereign over all those that have been installed. Even more so, I love Proverbs chapter 21, verse one. I think this passage is fascinating. Proverbs writes, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he wishes. It's not just that he installs kings in their offices, but even once they've been installed, he can control and he can move and change the heart of kings, whether they're evil or whether they're righteous. He can control and change their hearts. I had a a good friend in college who he had a theory uh, that he thought if he could hold and cup the cheek and the chin of a woman, he could control her heart. All right. No kidding. All right. He thought if you just placed a hand right here, the girl's heart would become putty and he could just manipulate it and control it however he wanted. All right. He obviously would be single and it'd take a little while to get married. All right. (laughs) but I think in many ways, as, as, as absolutely wrong as that is in dating, it's absolutely appropriate with really what Proverbs is saying of what God does with kings. God holds kings in check and he can move and he can manipulate and change the heart just as he pleases and just as he would desire. He installs kings and he moves and he can change the minds and the hearts of kings just as he may desire. So what do we do with that? As we think about politics, as we think about election that's coming up in just 60 hours, it will be decided, we'll begin to get results from. What do you and I do as we think of politics? I told you guys, in many ways, I vacillate from either extremely frustrated to extremely indifferent and, and, and uh, disengaged. And I want to, in a sense, help us land a little bit in the middle because if God is not going to be dictated to or backed down by evil majorities and evil monarchies, and if he's involved in the process, then we ought to engage in the process as well. But how do you and I keep a moderating position as we think about politics, as we think about even our role in it? Let me first say, as we think about kind of our response, let me say, I think you should engage in politics. You should be voting here in the coming days and and engaging in the process, all right? I don't think politics is evil. I don't think the civic political realm is evil. I think we are called to engage. We're called to have influence in that realm and engage in it and participate. But let me just say, as you participate, be a Christian and not necessarily a Republican or Democrat. That as you step into the political realm or as you think of stepping into the political realm officially, as you hit 21, as you get to the voting age, realize as you step in and as you engage, engage as a Christian and not necessarily as a Republican or a Democrat. I'll tell you guys, as I look at each of the party's platforms and policies, there are things within the Republican Party that I disagree with as I look at the scriptures. There are things that are in the Democratic platform that I disagree with as well, politically speaking and based on policies and issues. So let me encourage and challenge you guys as you guys engage that you guys would engage not by a basis of a party, but on basis of your faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith and that allegiance would determine how you guys engage in the process. Open the scriptures and look at the way that the scriptures will speak of government. The scriptures will speak much of economy, speak much of foreign policy, will speak much of government's role over and to protect minority groups. Scriptures say much as regards politics, much about how we are to engage and participate in the political process. Don't be those that are indifferent and just back away and really, in a sense, neglect and, and hand over what is your uh, godly, uh, divine right of engagement and participation, all right? Uh, and so as you do that, some of you guys, I'll even say, I'll even take it a step further and say, for some of y'all, there may be a, a place as you guys walk through college where God may be leading you and calling you even into pol- politics as a vocation, all right? And I think there's a sense for some of us as we think, oh, politics is so outside the church. It's so disconnected from what we are. I'd say, no, I I think the political realm needs some incredibly godly and righteous men and women to step in it and to have influence upon our country, upon our city, upon our state. And for some of you guys, you may be walking through college, you may be actually in a degree plan where God may be slowly but surely preparing you and leading you in that direction. I'd say, don't hesitate. (laughs) 
If that's a direction God is leading you, I think that could be incredibly strategic for his kingdom and God can use you mightily in that political arena and in that process. And I'd say, hey, go. But whether you engage in that process as an occupation or even just as a civic volunteer, no matter your level or your degree of engagement, let me just say also, I think we need to manage our expectations, all right? I think no matter to whatever extent that we engage in the process, I think we need to manage our expectations, all right? Ultimately, I think come Wednesday morning, some will speak of the presidential candidates, one that was elected, one that uh, missed the opportunity, and they'll portray some as the actual Christ who's going to come and, and solve all of the world's problems, who's going to bring peace and prosperity and blessing to all, and, or, and some will portray the one who was elected as the Antichrist, <laughs> as if our culture and our country is absolutely in abject poverty now and that we don't stand a chance, all right? I think neither candidate is the Christ, neither candidate is the Antichrist, all right? There's no need for alarm no matter what happens Tuesday night. And as we wake up Wednesday morning, there's no need to be panicked Begin because God is sovereign and he's the ultimate king over all governments, over all authorities, and he is in charge, all right? So even as you think about Wednesday morning and as, even as you think about whatever degree of, of involvement and engagement that you may have, I think you need to manage your expectations because primarily speaking, neither candidate is the Christ or the Antichrist and also The political arena and the political process is not the ultimate solution that our world, our city, our state, and our country need. It's influential in the process of what God may be wanting to do in our country, but it is not the end all solution for the greatest problems that are in our country. All right. I'll tell you guys, even as you engage, no no presidential candidate, no party, no policy, no governmental reform is going to fix the greatest issues that are in our country that are only going to be solved by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not, you have to either do gospel or do politics. It's not an either or, but I think they go hand in hand. That politics alone will not solve the process. The gospel alone is going to be limited in some of its ability of what it can do. And so we have to move out with the gospel that can redeem and transform, but also with some governmental policies that, that can engage and bring change and bring hope for those that are at times marginalized and sometimes they don't have a voice. And so as you engage, to whatever extent that you engage, manage your expectations because neither candidate is the Christ and neither candidate is the Antichrist. And as you engage in the process, realizing too that the governmental political process is not the ultimate solution for what our city, state, and our country need. What we need is Jesus. And as Jesus comes and interacts and he changes men and women, he changes hearts, he brings hope, he brings peace, he brings hope and opportunity. And ultimately, I think for many of us, we miss really what is ultimately necessary for our city and our state. Our hope really is ultimately tied to what God can do in our country. And what's fascinating is, as you look at uh, the story in Acts chapter 12, it's not going to just start and then end really with a sign that God is going to overcome evil monarchies and evil majorities. What I love about the story as well in Acts chapter 12 is that you're going to see that while the church is facing evil monarchies and evil majorities, they're faring incredibly poorly when it comes to prayer. Ultimately, what you're going to see next is that, uh, that when it comes to the people of God, God is going to accomplish something significant, sometimes even despite the puny prayers of the saints. And then what I think verses 12 and 17 are going to show us is that the people of God will be engaged in prayer, but the kind of prayer they're engaged with is incredibly pitiful, pathetic, and puny. And that they could be praying in so much of a larger, powerful way. And so what I think we're going to see in Acts 12 is just that. And before I get critical, though, I want you guys to see they are engaged in prayer, though. Notice verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. They're in the, the church is in the midst of the crosshairs of the political realm, and yet they are praying because it is their only and their only natural response. They're absolutely helpless in the situation, so they're saying, God, come help. They're bending the knee because they absolutely have no other option, and they're absolutely drawn and dependent on God. But I think, despite the fervency of their prayers, and Thomas Watson would say, 
that the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. And, and so I do think that the church is engaged in prayer and their engagement in prayer is absolutely significant for what's going to occur in the story. But I think what it follows in the story that we're about to see is also incredibly condemning of the church as they're praying in the political arena. Notice what happens in verse 12. And when he realized that when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rada came out to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice because of her joy, she did not open the gate. But she ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. It's interesting their response here. This is a group that's praying with one another as Peter is in prison. And when Peter's released and the news of his release is that he's outside of the gate, they don't believe it whatsoever. It's fascinating, even thinking about Peter himself in verse five or verse six, we find that Peter, the night before his execution is he's sound asleep. I think that itself is absolutely fascinating because if you guys remember some of the gospel stories of Peter is he is a guy who always led with his heart and not his mind, right? This is the guy who cut off the ear of the servant, the garden of Gethsemane as Jesus was arrested. This is the guy that jumped out of the boat and wanted to walk on water. This is the guy that was always leading out with his heart and not his mind. He was impetuous and he was passionate. And here he is, the night he's about to be executed before that. And he's just sound asleep. <laughs> What's going on with Peter, first of all? Because as the story would have unfolded, if I were to, in, in a sense, anticipate what I think Peter's doing, I think Peter's probably wrestling, fighting with the guards, completely unsure and unwilling to let this be his fate. But he's just sound asleep. That ought to be conspicuous because I think what you begin to see, even with Peter, is I think there might be a sense that Peter's just resigned to his fate. Probably at this point, maybe praying, Lord, let me die well. But I think Peter himself has reached a place where he doesn't think God is going to intervene and release him. In fact, I'm curious even for the group that he's going to go to, the house that he knows is praying. I'm curious what they were praying. Because whatever they're praying, when Peter shows up, they are blown out of their mind and they think there's absolutely no way Peter's there. In fact, they're going to argue with the servant girl that who's outside their gate is not a real life Peter, but it's Peter's angel that is after his death and he's come after his death, maybe to encourage them and tell them it's going to be okay. I don't know what. But they absolutely think it's more realistic that it is his angel after his death and they think it is actually Peter who's alive and then released from the prison. So what were they praying? What in the world were they praying? If they were praying for his release, if they were praying for God to intervene, then why are they so shocked and why are they so surprised? Why can't they even grasp this and in a sense assimilate to this idea that Peter's outside of the door? I think in many ways the church might have been praying now in such a way that they were absolutely disillusioned and disappointed. They've been persecuted. They've been beat down for chapter after chapter, event after event, story after story. And here they are. They are praying. But I suspect they're praying almost as a ritual that lacks power, that lacks faith. All right. I don't know if you guys have ever been in that place where you've been longing for something for so long maybe even coming to God for so long, praying it. And over time, finally, you just keep moving through the ritual, but you have no real sense of expectation that this is actually going to come about. When your expectations have been unfulfilled for so long, but yet you continue to pray, you persevere in fervent prayer, you continue on, but your prayer itself is just about a shell (laughs) because you really don't think it's going to happen anymore. Some of you guys know Marcy and I's dating story. Uh, We were great friends through college, right? And uh, I finally set her down halfway through my junior year. And I said, hey, uh, we have an incredible friendship. I wonder if this could ever become something more, all right? And I was incredibly fervent and unrelenting because I would sit her down seven different times, all right? And each time she'd say, 
maybe or no, but definitely not yes, all right? And so this would go on and on, and eventually I felt like the guy in Dumb and Dumber who always thought maybe I had a chance, all right? I was just kind of hanging on, all right? Some people thought as they've kind of heard our story that maybe I was a little stocky or kind of crazy, all right? Uh, it's not really the case, all right? But I remember uh, really kind of as we walked through that, I, I remember for a long time saying, hey, Lord, change my heart because this doesn't seem to be what you have for my future, so change my heart. And, and in fact, if this is what you have, then make it happen. And I pray that, I pray that, I pray that. And 14 months after the first time I set her down, she came back to me and said, hey, I'd love for us to date. All right. 14 months after I set her down the first time. All right. 14 months of praying going, hey, Lord, either change my heart or make this come about. And what do you think I did after 14 months of waiting through that when she finally said, hey, I'd love to date. I didn't go hot dang. Yes, this is awesome. Let's go. I just stared at her and thought, Man, this is kind of surreal. I just couldn't, I couldn't function at all, all right? I was completely emotionless, all right? I just stared at her and I thought, man, this is crazy. Why don't I just pray a couple days and I'll get back to you? That's literally what I did, all right? She said it was a long two days. I said it was a long 14 months, all right? So, uh, <laughs> but, but at least for me, at least, sorry, I didn't mean to take a shot at her. I don't know where she is right now. Uh, but at least for me though, and, and I'm incredibly grateful for the way the Lord brought us through dating, but at least for me, it was a great moment though, because I was praying for so long. All right. And I'm grateful, so grateful for the way the Lord unfolded our story. But as I prayed for so long, I hit this place where I was still praying, but I really had no real expectation that anything was going to change. Right. And I think in many ways, the church may have landed in the exact same spot where they've been praying, but circumstances have led to a complete lack of fulfillment of their expectations. Now for so long, they've seen their leaders uh, absolutely arrested and killed. And they're going, you know, I just don't think this is going to change. And I think for them, as they thought about the political arena, they've begun to just back down. They're still praying. I don't think they're praying with any real expectation that change is going to happen or that God can intervene and that God can do something. And so when Peter shows up on the doorstep, <laughs> they're arguing with the person who's telling them that Peter's there. Like even the girl who greets him is so shocked by it that she just leaves him on the street where he's being wanted and wanting to be killed. She leaves him on a dangerous street and comes in and goes, hey, guess what? Guess who's out there? <laughs> bring him in for Pete's sakes, right? And so finally they bring him in and he sits down and he says, hey, here's what's going on. Verse 17 it says, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison and he said, report these things to James and the brethren. And then he left and he went to another place. Credible moment here. God will intervene on the basis of their prayer. And yet I think their prayer was not very powerful at all, but pretty puny. So God can overcome evil majorities and evil monarchies and can even overcome and even use the puny prayers of his church. And yet I think, man, is that not completely true of even our church today and the American church today? I think that the great sense of evangelical churches today is that they've completely disengaged from much of the cultural arena, much of the cultural, political, civic, entertainment, academic realms. They've just, in a sense, punted and pulled back into their own little schools, their own little communities, and they've failed to engage and they've failed to move into those real influential arenas of our culture and of our country. And I think even as they've prayed, they've even disengaged prayer-wise. When was the last time you really prayed for our country? When was the last time you really prayed for our government? When was the last time you prayed for our elections? It's interesting. Paul will say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and, our, and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Paul says, hey, here's what we're to do. We're to engage in prayer, praying for all people in our country and even for our kings and those that are governing over us. 
When was the last time, whether you agreed with the president or not, you actually lifted him up in prayer and you prayed for him? I'll tell you, for me, I've disengaged at times, right? I'm not interested in the process. I'm frustrated with the arena. I'm frustrated with politicians, and so I've disengaged. And I think Acts 12 this morning and even 1 Timothy chapter 2 is a great correction for many of us to re-engage and to re-engage in a a prayerfully powerful way. I want to challenge you to, uh, not just for Tuesday night and for the election that's going on, I want to challenge you to pray, but I want to encourage you to pray even larger than that. So come Wednesday morning, whether you agree with the person who was elected president or not, pray for them to have wisdom. Pray for them to have capacity uh, for the great issues that are in front of them. Pray for them to lead in a manner that exudes righteousness, whether you agree with them or not. Pray for our country and our city and our state as well, that the righteousness of God would be installed, established, and grown. And that the church would have an opportunity in our culture, in our city, state, campuses, and even in our country to continue to serve in a way that brings tranquility, it brings peace, and brings opportunity. I'll tell you, there are things going on in our legislature today that are going to be limiting of what the church will be able to do in the future in this very country. There's legislation today going on that will limit the church's involvement and ministry's involvement even on college campuses like yours at Blinn or at A&M. Much of the church's ability to to honor and to serve God as we've been called is really, in a sense, becoming under a test and under limitation of what much is going on in the political realm right now. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you that there is much that is at stake. There's much that we need to be praying for. And let me plead with you, let me challenge you to begin to pray. Maybe the elections are, are an opportunity to start that process, but begin to build a consistent prayer life for political issues, for our government. And what that really means is some of you guys got to be engaged enough to know what to pray for, to know what's going on. Don't fall into the fear and the hate that you're going to hear. But as you pray, don't back down of asking God to do great things beyond anything we can imagine, beyond anything that we think is realistic right now. Ask that God would intervene. Ask that God would do the miraculous. Ask that God would protect those that are minority groups that don't have an opportunity. Ask God that he would allow our governments to rule with righteousness and with wisdom and that his kingdom would be established even right here in ways beyond anything we can expect. The reason we are called to do that, the reason that we can have the confidence to do that is really how the passage ends, all right? The passage is going to end showing us that God can overcome evil majorities and evil monarchies, that he can overcome even the puny prayers of the church because primarily speaking, he is motivated by the willingness to protect his namesake and his glory. The thing that drives God more than anything else is a desire to establish and protect and exalt his name and his glory above anything else. If there's an agenda he has, it is the exaltation of his glory, which is why he's extended his kindness and his grace to you and I who do know and have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The passage is fascinating is that we see how God is going to protect his glory. As you're going to notice, in a sense, Herod is going to play the role of God. Notice verse 18. Now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. And when Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards in order that they be led away to execution. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. And so even in verses 18 and 19, Herod decides he's going to stand in the role and the place of judge and he's going to determine who gets life and who gets death. And then in verse 20, now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and with one accord they came to him and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. And on an appointed day, having put on his royal apparel, he took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out the voice of a God and not of a man. Fascinating. Verse 20, people are wanting peace. People are wanting food and provision. And he decides he's the one who's going to determine who gets peace and who gets provision. And then he's going to begin to play the role. He dresses up in royal garments. And then as people begin to say that he's not just a king, but he's God, he just receives that worship. 
He plays the role of God and the result is God is going to act. In fact, notice what he does in verse 23. Notice the result of this. Uh, the angel immediately and the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. He receives the worship of the country and immediately God strikes him and kills him on the spot. Fascinating story. I don't know if you've ever thought about how you want to die. I have quite a bit, actually. Kind of freaky and weird. I know, all right? But I've thought to myself, of all the ways I don't want to die, it's this one. All right? I don't want to die by worms, all right? And so uh, I, I, we don't know exactly how he died. We don't know the details. Some will say that it was over a course of five days, that he, something had, had hit him, and then he would eventually die. Some will say it's right on the spot. But either way, uh, I want to give you guys one potential scenario, all right? Uh, this is, this is the hookworm. All right. So some of you guys may know about parasites and, and worms, but this is the hookworm and he gets his way into your body through your feet, which is why in certain countries and cultures, your shoe wear and footwear is really important. All right. And so it gets its way through his feet and then he comes through your blood system, attaches its way to its, your intestine. All right. And then breathes. All right. And then begins to suck your blood. All right. So if you're going to die of hookworms, you're going to have incredible anemia. And then his intestines is going to really jack with you because you're going to have incredible abdominal pains, incredible diarrhea, incredible nausea, and rashes all over your body, all right? So if Herod dies of the hookworm, oh my, right? This is not one way I want to die. And I'm not trying to freak you out, but I want to just say this. Herod is going to live like he's God, all right? But he's going to die in a way that no one thinks he's God, all right? He's going to do everything possible to show and to live as if he were God. He's going to try to play the role and the part of God, but God is going to come and judge and judge in such a way that he's going to die a death that no one would have thought he was God, right? He's going to, have, he's going to die the worst kind of death, right? Because when the glory of God is affronted, God reacts. He's look at the Old Testament, it's clear that God is a jealous God, that he will give his glory to none other. He will ensure that his name is exalted above all others. And Tyler said a lot of this as we were in worship this morning, that even as you think of governments and elections today, the reality is a, a kingdom is going to be coming in the future of a king who is the king of all kings. And a government will be established that will subsume and overcome all other current contemporary governments. And so these people are just little people here for a short time before God comes and establishes a kingdom that will be over all other kingdoms. And this will be a king of kings who will exert his authority over all other monarchs, evil or good, Majority is evil or good, and he will assume and put his government over all. And the kingdom that he will establish will be one that is unshakable. It will be one that was filled with the kind of righteousness, the kind of wisdom, the kind of goodness that we will never see yet today. If you're looking for that kind of kingdom today, you will not find it. That does not mean that we disengage completely, but we engage looking to see that future kingdom coming in a way that is but a brief trailer, a brief preview for what is eventually going to come as Jesus Christ returns. He is the king of kings and he has no substitute and he has no parallel. Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul will say very clearly, there is one king and one king only, and he is unlike any other king, any other politician. And he's going to establish a righteous monarchy in a coming day. And that kingdom will be universal. And that kingdom will have the kind of provision, the kind of peace, the kind of fullness of blessing that we are looking for now. Asking every political uh, official to promise that he can do for us, but none will fulfill it. None will provide it because ultimately they're but an arrow who is pointing to an eventual king who's going to come, who will rule just as we're hoping for. All the debates, if you've been watching the last few months, are all about a nation's desire for that coming kingdom by politicians who will not be able to provide it. (laughs) 
Four years from whatever president is elected will be marked with failure, marked with further problems, marked with advances and increases and improvements in some areas, but failures in new areas. Because ultimately they're not the king of kings. They're not the chosen Messiah. They're also not the Antichrist. All right. And so I think we need to have a moderating sense really as we think about what's happening, as we engage in it, and even as we pray for it. So we're going to end this morning in worship. I want to give you guys an opportunity to, to really respond in worship to that coming king. The one who is infinitely glorious. The one who will eventually accomplish all that we're hoping for, all that we're looking for, and all that we're anticipating. So as you guys respond, let me just encourage you guys to think through, hey, even for you personally, let me give you guys two last questions really to wrap us up with. And if, if that coming king is that good, he's that righteous, and he's that sovereign, then have you kneeled to him in your life? <laughs> Are there arenas and are there areas of your life that you've yet to really submit to him because he is the king of kings, he is the Lord of lords, and therefore he is worthy of the entirety of your life? If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, then it is not about kneeling, it is not about submitting and handing your life over, but it is about simply kneeling in humility to say thank you for the free gift that Jesus Christ has provided us. He is a coming king who will come to rule, but he first came to die. And as he died, he handed to you and I the free gift of eternal life. And so if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the greatest thing that you can do as you respond to this morning is simply respond to say, thank you for the free gift that you have a hope of eternal life with him forever. And that he's wiped away the debt of your sins so that you can enter into a relationship with him. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ, let me challenge you. Hey, are there arenas of your life that you've not yet handed over to him? Are there arenas of your life that you've not yet submitted? And you said, Hey, you can be Lord here, but you can't be Lord here. And I'm going to give you guys a second question that you guys can even think through and meditate on even as you respond in worship, and that's this. Are you yet on his campaign staff? If this coming king is that good, he's that sovereign, he's that righteous, and he's that wise, then are you campaigning for little mini kings who will never measure up to this coming king? And if so, then you need to get on a different campaign staff. Are you promoting his coming kingdom? Are you promoting his glory and his, his goodness and his mercies to a culture that so desperately needs to hear it? So let me let you guys have an opportunity to just come before the Lord and worship, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father God, we come before you this morning, and for so many of us, as we think of authorities, as we think of kings, as we think of politicians, we think of those that are out of touch, that don't know our lives, that don't know the particulars of our lives that maybe are corrupt, that don't understand. And Father, I thank you that you are a king who does understand, that you are a king who loves us intimately and is intimately acquainted with us. From what we say to what we do to who we are, you wired us and you formed us from the womb. And Father, I pray that in the midst of your coming kingdom, in the midst of your coming rule, Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater intimacy with you, that you would give us a greater comfort with you, that you would call us into a new place, a deeper place as the Lord. And I pray that even as we think of the political realm, Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom as we engage and as we serve as ambassadors of you. As we wait for a coming kingdom that is eventually coming, Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in light of that kingdom, in light of that day, trusting in you and you alone in a way that no one else can provide and do as we look forward to your return, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.